Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Robert Mugabe a name that sharply divides opinion around the world. On the one hand, he was a symbol of African liberation, a hero respected and revered by many who helped free his country from colonial rule. But on the other, he was a brutal dictator, responsible for repeated cycles of gross human rights violations and extreme violence and oppression. So who was the real Mugabe? I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare. And to find out, I've invited Sue Onslow onto the podcast. Sue is a professor at King's College London and the author of a biography about Mugabe, simply named Robert Mugabe. It's thanks to Sue's expertise that we get to explore Mugabe's rise to power, his surprising partnership with China and North Korea, and the long history of brutal crackdowns that ultimately helped lead to the coup that ended his 37-year rule. So, here is Sue Onslow as part of our special Dictators Month here on Warfare, taking a deep dive into the rise and fall of Robert Mugabe. Enjoy. Hi, Sue. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Well, Robert Mugabe is who we're talking about today as part of our special month-long mini-series on dictators. Now, Mugabe, the first prime minister and later president of an independent Zimbabwe who traded the mantle of a great liberator for the armour of a tyrant and arguably presided over the decline of one of Africa's most prosperous lands, Zimbabwe, the bread basket of Africa. He is, to many, a dictator, and that's why we've included him. But is that fair, Sue? Is he actually technically a dictator? Technically a dictator? No, he was not technically a dictator. He wasn't a, a tyrant who ruled by personal whim and with a bunch of psychophants around him. He was an elected prime minister and then president. So I suppose you could count it as an electoral autocracy. But also, we in the West fail to understand how politics and societies at the elite level work in Zimbabwe during Robert Mugabe's time. We tend to think of only one man. That's not the case at all. That there are the coteries of power, these power relations that existed between the military, the politicians, the business elite, all of whom were interconnected. And Robert Mugabe was very much at their heart, at the nexus of this web of power relations. He was adept at divide and rule. That helped to explain why he was able to stay at the top for 37 years. But he was not a dictator in the classical sense. Take us back those 37 years, Sue, back to Mugabe's early days and the struggle for Zimbabwe's independence. What was his involvement in that liberation movement? Robert Mugabe grew up in very straitened circumstances in an impoverished Catholic mission called Outside in Masvingo province. 
and he was the second surviving child. His father left his mother, and so he became head of the house as the, the oldest boy went by the age of nine. He was intellectually, I wouldn't say brilliant, but very clever indeed. And he had instilled into him the importance of learning, very important for the, how he behaved later, and also his Catholic faith and the, the value system of it. Although in later life, he was doesn't seem to have been a practicing Catholic. In terms of his engagement, though, he grew up in an era of the southern Rhodesia, he was born in, of course, in 1924. Southern Rhodesia, then it became part of the Central African Federation. This was an era of white-dominated politics and also a time of racism. And so Robert Mugabe grew up at a time of this colonial environment, which was almost independent of the mother country. I'm using that in inverted commas, uh, the United Kingdom. But it was a petty apartheid. It was everyday racism, a disadvantage that he there wasn't enough money for him to go to university. He had to be sponsored by both his grandfather and also the Catholic mission to go to the University of Fort Hare down in South Africa. From there, he went back to Zimbabwe, oh, sorry, Rhodesia, as I must call it, where he worked for a couple of years as a teacher. And then he went to Ghana. Now, this is all very important in terms of his rise as a committed revolutionary and a committed liberation struggle activist, because he went to Ghana once Ghana had become independent under the president Kwame Nkrumah. So this was a very exciting time in terms of African independence from colonial rule. And he was caught up in the heady environment of liberation and independence. Independence wasn't just a date in the calendar and dropping the flag. It was very much a sense of pan-Africanism, of independence, of the African personality. And Robert Mugabe became subsumed, enthused by this. At the time, back in southern Rhodesia, there was a rise of Zimbabwean nationalism and pressure on the white minority regime for greater economic and political rights. And Robert Mugabe came back with his then girlfriend, Sally Hafron, who later became his wife, in 1960, and he got caught up in, if you like, nationalist politics in 1960. And as he spoke at a, a very large rally, which was in Salisbury, the capital, which of course is now Harare. And he was invited to speak from the platform and he was very eloquent, had clearly defined views and was able to articulate them with great cogency and effectiveness. And so he became swept up in the struggle. So his idea of coming back for a brief visit then turned into, I need to commit myself to the struggle of my country for independence. And he married Sally and became, as I say, deeply involved in struggle politics in Zimbabwe. By 1964, he was arrested for subversive speech and put in jail. He'd managed to, he'd become publicity secretary back in 1960. The party that he joined had split and he had stayed with the ZANU, which was the Zimbabwe African National Union side of things. He'd become their secretary general of their central committee. But as I say, he was arrested by the white Rhodesian security forces. He was convicted and he was slammed in jail. And he spent the next 10 years in jail. 
very much like his alter ego, Nelson Mandela, down in South Africa, that he was a, another prison graduate because in prison, and he was kept under pretty lean conditions, I have to say, very cramped conditions, poor food, but he devoted himself to learning. And he got degrees by correspondence course from the University of London. And he used a very specific daily regime of exercise and study. This was very much his agenda of self-betterment. He was let out, really, because of a South African and Zambian pressure on the Rhodesian government, the call that there should be negotiations between the white minority regime of Ian Smith and Zimbabwean nationalists. And at the time, the ZANU, there'd been a split, a kind of internal revolt against the then leader, Reverend Ndabanini Sitole. And he had renounced armed struggle, which, of course, to the revolutionaries in ZANU was anathema. It was a sellout. Robert Mugabe was chosen by the internal group inside prison, this is prison politics, prison liberation politics, to be the spokesperson at this the meeting in Lusaka, drawing Zimbabwean nationalist leaders to speak to Ian Smith. Anyway, that was, again, a fraught meeting. Mugabe returned to Zimbabwe and very quickly he got wind that the Smith regime was going to arrest him. So using his Catholic networks, he escaped into neighbouring Mozambique, where that's in 1975. And between 75 and 79, he progressively installed himself through guile, good ideological fervour, good luck, persuasion, into the political hierarchy of the liberation movement based in Mozambique. So he was the antithesis of a guerrilla fighter. He was, and if you like, he was slim, nervous. He was not the stereotypical big-shouldered guerrilla fighter, far from it. He was, if you like, he came up through the political ranks, but the combatants, those leading the fight, who were the brutal but brilliant commanders, who were Rex Nongo and also Josiah Tongogara, were very different political animals, if you like, to Robert Mugabe. So he led the political side of the movement. Yes, he was able to ward off, to deal with, to use tactics of divide and rule, to circumvent opposition. And there was considerable opposition. But he as I say, through his ideological conviction and his using his brilliance, using his rhetoric, he was able to manoeuvre his way through liberation politics to the point when in 1979, the British government decided again it was going to call an all-party constitutional discussion because the brutal civil war that was going on inside Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, uh, which was really a three-way fight by this particular point, had reached a stalemate. And the Commonwealth was also pressing the British government to hold an all-party uh, conference, which the Brits had already decided to do, but they did this in London between September and December of 1979. Now, at this point, Robin Mugabe very much felt that ZANU, the nationalist movement, which he was the political leader, should win through the barrel of the gun. They should defeat the Rhodesian regime. In other words, there should be no compromise. However, because of a, a combination of political pressures on him, and it have to say that probably a military defeat uh, in the battlefield to the, the peasant fighters, the pressure was on Robert Mugabe to negotiate at Lancaster House and to accept the Lancaster House agreement. Then return, 
There was an agreement that there should be a ceasefire. Again, Robert Mugabe was intensely opposed to this, but was pressured into agreeing this. An election campaign with Rhodesia, as it then was, that had gone back to British rule under the governor, Christopher Soames. And Robert Mugabe's party, through, okay, electoral support, but also through a sustained campaign of violence, intimidation and use of terror, managed to secure electoral victory in the early 1980 elections. And Robert Mugabe's party came out the victors with 57 seats in parliament, in contrast to the rival opposition or the rival nationalist movement led by Joshua Nkomo, which only got 20 seats, and a minor African nationalist party, the UANC, which only got three. So he was an elected Marxist at that point. Extraordinary. Wow. It truly is extraordinary. What a canny, calculating revolutionary to be able to tread the line between the violence of the civil war itself, but to almost stand above it whilst orchestrating it and to make yourself an electable political leader. That isn't particularly easy to do and to not take the country by the barrel of the gun, but to take it at the polls. But is it fair to say that Mugabe wasn't afraid to use force where force was needed? What was his relationship like with the military? He was not afraid to use force if force was needed. He was the first one to argue that ZANU should use armed struggle, that it was no good trying to go down the evolutionary, if you like, the social democratic route to power in the 1960s. That's why he was so critical of Sitole, who had renounced armed struggle and had said that he would be part of a negotiated, if you like, evolutionary settlement. And also to Robert Mugabe, it was armed struggle was to a purpose. It was Violence was a political language. And when things were going his way, he was magnanimous. But when cornered or up against it, he could be vicious and vindictive. And the number of his political opponents, once he had become prime minister and then president, who met a sticky end, is really very striking. Because Robert Mugabe placed great weight, great emphasis on personal loyalty. And if you opposed him, as the leader, that was a betrayal. If you like, a psychological expectation that as leader, through process of democratic centralism, that everybody else should fall into line and not challenge him, because to do so was in fact a betrayal. You could say this is borderline paranoia, but the young Zimbabwean revolutionaries in the Zimbabwe Independent People's Army in 1976, who had supported him, hoping that they could, should we say, straddle the divides between the rival nationalist movements, very quickly realised they'd made a huge mistake, that in fact that he was autocratic, that he was paranoid, that he was dictatorial, and he was not the great leader that they had hoped that he would be. Going back to his relationship with the army, as I've tried to indicate, it was complex because he was not the liberation fighter of, say, President Samora Michel, who believed very firmly that a liberation leader should have come up through the guerrilla ranks. He'd come up the political path, if you like. And as I've indicated, he was not a warrior. He didn't have the physique of a warrior. He was not the battlefield strategist. I mean, he was a political strategist. So he wasn't out there on the front line, Sue. This is someone who is more trying to build upon the political thinking, the, the line of thought, the ideology of the Marxist, Leninist, Maoist kind of way of thinking and to implement that into his country's entire political future. And 
He'll allow the military, those who want to fight, to do that for him. War is a continuation of politics, as we know. But for him, it's about rising above that and directing things from perhaps a little bit more of an arm's length. Yes, but if you look at it as a kind of an attitude of national democratic revolution, that there should be a revolution to overthrow the white capitalist state of Rhodesia. And that's why I made reference to through the barrel of a gun. And then there should be a social transformation of Zimbabwean's political economy and society. You asked about the, the question of the front line when he escaped into Mozambique in 1975 for over for a year, he was effectively under house arrest in a place called Kilimani, which is about 1,500 kilometers north of Maputo on the coast in Mozambique. And he had to apply to the Mozambican president's office for permission to travel. And yet, of course, he the realization was that he had to cement his position, which was very uncertain in the kind of jockeying of position in the, the DA, which was the, the upper echelons, the political council of the Zimbabwe African National Union. And to do that, he went to Chimoyo, which was a very large refugee camp, which was also a base for liberation fighters. And that was regularly targeted by the Rhodesian security forces. So it wasn't that he lacked necessarily physical courage, but he was not a fighter. He was not out there leading the troops over the top, gun in hand, with the notebook from the political commissar exhorting the peasant fighters. Nor did he actually, was he responsible for saying, we should go for the peasant-based revolution, because that was Herbert Chitepo, who was the Zimbabwe African National Union leader who was assassinated by the Rhodesian security forces in Lusaka. So again, that was, if you could say brutally, that was Robert Mugabe's good luck. But that's why he was very much in, if you like, the political side of it. Although then Nongo and also Tongagara did agree that he would be commander in chief of it. But you have to understand in ZANU-PF, it's the relationship of the army to the party. That the army then, as now, was the military wing of the party. Okay, the political side was the political organisation of the army. It is this unique relationship, these power relations that ex have existed. So the army at regular points throughout Robert Mugabe's history, as in current day politics in Zimbabwe, the army have stepped in when the politicians have become so fraught, so fractious, falling out among themselves to, as the regulator. And we saw this with the coup against Robert Mugabe in November of 2017. But just going back to the point about his relationship with the army, he wasn't the liberation fighter. He wasn't the brilliant but brutal commando. And so there was this rivalry that existed with Josiah Tongagara, who came to a very untimely end in a traffic accident in late December 1979. It's often thought that Robert Mugabe had helped to instigate this because he was, shall we say, angered because of Tongagara's stealing the diplomatic limelight at the Lancaster House conference in the plenary sessions, and that also Tongagara felt that there should be more conciliation than Robert Mugabe felt that there should be. And then also, in later life, it was his rivalry with Rex Nongo, who, that was his war name, if you like, his nom de guerre. And it's commonly thought that Robert Mugabe was behind Rex Nongo's still unresolved assassination in 2011 in Zimbabwe. So Mugabe is truly brutal, a tyrant in many senses, although not technically a dictator. He certainly has looked through the dictator's rulebook and started to assassinate anybody 
that could challenge his power in order to consolidate that power and, of course, to spend so many decades in power. But one thing that's always fascinated me about Mugabe is you come to power as a revolutionary. You say that you have, and it's a quote from Mugabe, that he has this Marxist, Leninist, Maoist line of thought. That's his kind of scholarly hinterland for the way that he wants things done in his country. But this is the midst of the Cold War. And so how does he calculate this? How does he calculate between communism and capitalism, between East and West, and a struggle that's going on across the African continent at this time, whilst at the same time, of course, am, am I right in thinking at some point Mugabe also gets knighted by the Queen? And so he's maintaining this relationship with the British, who, of course, have their business interests still in what they saw as Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. How on earth does Mugabe manage to calculate his way through the madness of the Cold War? Okay, there are multiple aspects to that question. Okay, first of all, I just want to pick you up on your point about he felt he could assassinate anybody because Robert Mugabe didn't just go around assassinating anybody who thwarted him or who, who crossed him. And the exponent of that was Ian Smith, who, after all, was the outgoing white Rhodesian prime minister in 1979, replaced by Bishop Abel Muzarewa, Ian Smith died in Zimbabwe. He didn't have his farm taken away from him. So you had to wait to be dismissed by Robert Mugabe. But if you resigned, then you were a political opponent and a would-be threat. But the number of people who did make a sicky end is quite marked. But it wasn't basically, once you'd said no to Robert Mugabe, then your days were numbered. But you might be under you might be under threat, might have to go, you might, might have to move within Zimbabwe, might have to step down from active politics, might have to leave the country. But I just really want to correct that thing about this is not a free-for-all in assassinating any possible political opponent. But surely that's a calculated political decision there. You're not going to kill the last white leader of the country because that might destroy your connections already with businesses that you want to continue to work with to keep Zimbabwe rocking and rolling economically. Whereas if you kill those who are coming up in your own party or around you who might be able to take power from you, then that's your business. And it's not going to be so much of a furore in terms of your international reputation. So is that more of a, that's just a political consideration. He knows who he can kill and get away with, and he knows who he needs to leave alone. I think that the relationship is more subtle than that. And I go back to my point about that he wasn't, should we say, the sole autocrat. Because this is a neo-patrimonial state with, as I say, that matrix of relationships between the military, the political and also the business elite. Because Robert Mugabe keeping them happy and also them working towards the leader. So that there would be political calculations by Robert Mugabe, but also by those who supported him. So if there was the rival businessman, Solomon Mujuru, who had accumulated vast wealth by the 2010s, it's thought that okay, he'd also antagonised international diamond dealers. He'd antagonised other people besides Robert Mugabe. So there were others who were working towards the leader that for whom the removal of Solomon Mujuru may have suited their agenda. So it's a complex terrain. This is not the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland off with their head. No, it's not that. And so you've got the, Zimbabwe was an extraordinary hybrid amalgam of, if you like, electoral authoritarianism, but with a functioning parliament, with a judiciary, with a constitution. And so it was 
forms and norms. It, but it's a different political culture. And that dynamic between military and the political party is very important indeed. So I really want to underline this, the complexity of it. It's, fasc- it's fascinating, Sue, because it, it makes him so different to the other tyrants, dictators, that we're going to be looking at during this series, because this is somebody who has to listen to those around him, or he's not going to keep hold of his own place in the system. So it's a complex, multi-dimensional working relationship that he has to balance, and you have to be quite talented to do that. You do, because in 2008, when his party had lost the election, which had been marked by appalling violence and intimidation, Robert Mugabe wanted to step down. And the Joint Operations Command, the JOC, the military leaders said, you can't, because they realised this, OK, the security elite, but that by this point had was effectively running the country. They realised that they were all in the same boat and that if Mugabe went, who was going to protect them? and their business holdings, their vested interests. So they told him that he couldn't step down. So that's what I mean about this, the complexity of the power relations. But he was still autocratic, a disciplinarian, austere. He was known as the headmaster, go back to that importance of learning. And he definitely believed that his prescriptions were right. As I say, this fraught and taught relationship with the elites that he and also with his ideology. You talk about the importance of his Marxist convictions. This is very interesting indeed, because there's been a great political debate about the extent to which Robert Mugabe was indeed a Marxist. And he was, I see him as, if you like, an African nationalist par excellence. He was for African independence. And this wasn't simply independence with decolonization hauling down the flag. This was African independence and sovereignty, but also the transformation of class relations. He used Marxism as a very useful critique to understand settler capitalism and its ills. And also what's very notable about Robert Mugabe is that his ideological beliefs became progressively distilled, concentrated over the passage of time. They didn't change. They became reinvigorated and more embedded So the rest of the world was changing, his country was changing, but Robert Mugabe was not changing. So for a statesman who, as I say, was ruled for 37 years, who'd formed his ideas, his understandings of the political economy, of the structural interpretations that Marxism gives, they dated back to the 50s and the 60s. His country in the 90s, 2000s and 2010s had changed, and the international community had certainly changed dramatically by that point. So did he necessarily have the intellectual flexibility to understand the world as it was in 2017? I would argue probably not. But you know what? The world had changed around him. He had not changed. But going back to this point about whether he was a Marxist, he certainly believed in the redistribution of wealth and to address the sharp, appalling racial inequalities that existed in his country. He believed, in other words, fundamental redistribution in addressing the national grievances of which that were very real among his countrymen. He believed in the role of the state as the driver of the development and the importance of central control and command of the economy. And for that, you had to have, if not ownership, but then certainly control over the commanding heights of industry to dictate what was the state prescriptions for what you had identified as societal ills. He came to believe in the importance of a peasant-based revolution. So he was more of a Maoist in that way, rather than thinking of simply the dictatorship of the proletariat. He also believed in the importance of the party as the vanguard of revolution, which, of course, makes him a Marxist-Leninist. 
because it was Lenin, the Bolsheviks, who believed in the role of the party at the forefront of revolution to drive the agenda, to seize every potential revolutionary moment, not just to sit around and wait for it in a a traditional Marxist social democratic sense of we'll just wait for the inevitable inherent class contradictions and historical materialism of thesis, antithesis, synthesis to, to, to roll out. Ah, no, no, no. The party was going to be at the cutting edge, the driving force of that. But he was also an Afro-radicalist, if you like, because he came to be invested so much in indigenization in the importance of the African personality. So it was the importance of addressing his identified ills of the people, the povo, combined with embourgeoisement. In other words, that elite that he had to keep happy. And you do that through indigenization, through controlling foreign direct investment, through controlling land, through controlling okay, resource extraction, but you've got an elite who are intent on resource accumulation and also a massively impoverished rural population with land hunger. So he was, how to describe it, an Afro-radical socialist, I think. There. <laughs> Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. an Afro-radical socialist. So where does this put him in the game of the Cold War? You say that he is a very much a pan-Africanist looking for African independence. We think about this period of time, we think about the Cold War, we think about other tyrants that are around him. We think about Gaddafi, maybe. Someone who very much liked to poke and prod the West, funding the IRA, for example, supplying them with Semtex that would then go on to be used to bomb key sites on the UK's mainland in, in London, for example. Would also play a, a dangerous game between the US and, and the Soviet Union. What was Mugabe's role in the Cold War? Did he play a similar dangerous game? Or was he more concerned with his domestic political machinations? For example, when he was destroying the economic power of Zimbabwe's white community, which was based on removing them from the country's most fertile land. Was that his main priority? Or did he have a bigger international political game going on? I think we need to realise that the, the Cold War was in fact a series of regional wars and each had its own local, regional and international dynamic. And only if you understand this battle of systems and ideas through that lens can you understand what Mugabe's perspective in the Cold War and Zimbabwe's perspective in the Cold War. Zimbabwe, for Robert Mugabe, was certainly part of the decolonization process. He was an anti-imperialist, and that is how the Soviets conceptualized 
the Cold War in Southern Africa, the, the Soviet bloc, that this was the struggle against the imperialist forces. It was to support, they didn't necessarily think that they were terribly good Marxists, but it was to see the destruction of white-led capitalism. In other words, you had to achieve the racial revolution before you achieved the social revolution. And I've spoken to former Soviet bureaucrats who would said that we didn't think necessarily they were very good Marxists, but we supported their revolution against, as I say, against the white imperialists, supported from outside. So in this agenda of white anti-imperialism, it wasn't that Robert Mugabe was, if you like, was against the whites, he was against the white settler capitalism of what they typified, what they led. Robert Mugabe used, if you like, external patrons for the for ZANU's own transformatory revolutionary agenda. His rival revolutionary movement looked to the Soviets and the Soviet bloc for arms, for solidarity, for financial support, etc. But then Joshua and Coma also looked to, shall we say, arch white capitalists such as Tiny Rowland as head of Lonro. So they were no more in the pocket of the Soviets than Robert Mugabe was in the pocket of the Chinese. But it was certainly Beijing's support for Robert Mugabe based in Mozambique in providing small arms, in providing training, in providing both training in China, but also sending Chinese trainers into Mozambique, which was particularly important. So this is not the Cold War as a simple confrontation between the United States and the Soviet bloc. This is much a much more muddled and contested terrain. And the other aspect of the Cold War, once Robert Mugabe, an avowed Marxist, who was not enthralled to Moscow, was elected leader, there was concern that he might look to Moscow, but that failed to appreciate that his allegiance and alignment was more to Beijing and also to North Korea. And in fact, the fact that the Soviets had pumped a lot of hard weaponry towards Sapu, which had not used it, their fighters had sat largely idle in Zambia during the Liberation War. Not exclusively, I don't want to pretend that, because there were particular clashes between the, the rival liberation movements between 77 and 79. But the Soviets had hoped that they would be able to have an embassy in Harare, as it became. But Robert Mugabe held off on that. And in fact, very interestingly, he agreed that the Americans and the Brits could bug the building that the Soviets then set up an embassy. So they knew what was going on. So that's what I'm talking about. Also, Robert Mugabe's relationship with the ANC, which had strong links to Moscow, strong links to Zapu, was also much more tense and fraught than people realise. Just because they're all liberation fighters doesn't mean they're all on the same side. These multiple chess pieces. And when Robert Mugabe became leader and there was, a, should we say, the, the dissident, the opponents of the new political dispensation, uh, returning disaffected zebra fighters, South Africa was deviling in it, trying to stimulate opposition. And Robert Mugabe's uh, sent in the North Korean trained 5th Brigade into Matabeliland and caused appalling violence and intimidation against primarily the civilians, but also former Zipra fighters. But there was a Soviet angle to it because Robert Mugabe was also in contact with the South Africans who wanted to keep the Marxist-aligned ANC out of that area. As I say, it's incredibly complex. 
Now, you go back to what was his place in the Cold War. Robert Mugabe was a stalwart of the non-aligned movement. And non-alignment meant equidistance. It meant putting your national interests first. The process of decolonization came first. Ideological contestation between, as I say, Western liberal democratic capitalism and Soviet-led socialism, similarly, was second. But it was this complex interaction of the two. And he, as I say, was a stalwart of the non-aligned movement. He hosted a non-aligned meeting in 1989. And... Again, you have the apparent paradox of simply because he was a Marxist didn't mean that he was in thrall to Moscow's direction, even though the Rhodesians thought that he was. Robert Mugabe admired Marshal Tito because he felt Tito had followed the Yugoslavia's own independent road to socialism. In defiance, it could be said, and it really existential risk to Yugoslav socialism. And Robert Mugabe felt that this was the path to follow. That's absolutely fascinating. On one level, this, this podcast miniseries has looked at Mao as our first episode, and we're looking at Tito as part of the series. So Mugabe, is, as, as the sandwich filling in the middle, has linked perfectly to the two of those in terms of his inspiration and his place in history. But you've explained so well just exactly all of the different dynamics that he had to deal with. But for me personally, Sue, I knew nothing about the fact that Mugabe had troops trained in North Korea and his links were closer to China than anywhere else. That's... Well, just correct. It was North Korean trainers who came to Zimbabwe who ah, trained the 5th Brigade. And the 5th Brigade was accountable only to the Prime Minister's office. That was Robert Mugabe at the time because he didn't become president until 1987. And that meant that when they went into Matibeliland to, quote, deal, and it was appalling, the Kukuruhundi campaign, they think as many as 50,000 people may have been killed. But it, it was a traumatised uh, community that was left. It was using violence as a political language, which time and again, this acculturation, this use of intimidation, harassment, rape, beatings, targeted killings, mass killings, it's grotesque but it is embedded in a political culture. Let's get into that in a little bit more detail, Sue, because one of the most famous policies that Mugabe put into place, of course, was his ousting of thousands of white farmers from their farms, sometimes violently, between 2000 and, and 2001. And for some, this is his greatest success, but others, it's also the start of the breaking apart of a successful, vibrant Zimbabwean economy and perhaps the start of the, the fall of Mugabe. Is, is that a fair appraisal? Or were there other factors at play that led to the demise of the nation of Zimbabwe in terms of its economy, but also in terms of Mugabe's reputation internationally? I'd say in the first decade, probably decade and a half of Robert Mugabe's okay, place at the summit of, of Zimbabwean politics as prime minister and then president, he achieved extraordinary things in terms of education and primary health care delivery. And I really want to underline that because it's so often forgotten. So he inherited an appalling situation, a country that was coming out of a brutal three-way civil war, returning refugees, returning fighters, levels of land alienation and land hunger, turning an, an embattled economy to a peacetime economy in a very rough neighbourhood, because right next to apartheid South Africa, which then started devilling in Zimbabwean politics because of its own counterinsurgency strategy. So Robert Mugabe had to tread a, a very careful path. 
so that certainly there were successes, but there was also progressive corruption. And this was becoming embedded by the latter part of the 1980s. There was one particular case of Willowgate, where leading members of the ZANU-PF elite were involved in importing high-end cars at reduced rates and then selling them on and pocketing the proceeds or pocketing the difference. So that that was a, a corruption on a grand scale. But by the beginning of the 1990s, there was a there were two successive droughts, which hit the Zimbabwean rural economy and its food security very hard, and it just underlined the land hunger because after all, for so many of the Zimbabwean rural population, land was the basis of their sustenance. It was it, it was a scarce resource, and they didn't had failed to address it. There had been faltering land reform between 1980 and 1990, and in fact, the Brits and the Canadians had de- allocated. Okay, it could be said generous funds, yes, towards land transfer, but it had been bureaucratically very slow. So in other words, you've already got you've got a build-up of land hunger. You've then got drought, and then the push was increasingly towards land reform. But in this, Mugabe was, okay, it could be said bureaucratically checked. Though increasingly the Zimbabwean government looked to the British government to make you know enormous sums available, which the International Development Secretary, Claire Short, sent a very unwise letter to the Zimbabwean government saying, basically, don't look to us and don't lecture me about imperialism. I, as a somebody of Irish descent, know all about British colonialism. That doesn't sound like one that the civil service would allow through on the normal occasion. Yes, I don't know how her officials managed to let that letter get passed. I really don't. Anyway, but it, it was sent, and understandably, the ZANU-PF leadership took great offence at this. And in addition to this, there were other multiple factors. So you've got land hunger building up. You've also got Zimbabwean economy had started to stutter and falter. They took out a structural adjustment loan from the international financial agencies. And that brought in a period of austerity, rolling back the state, the the budgetary expenditure on the public service, civil service. Those people were going to really scream. Rising cost of living, trade union, opposition. Combine that with war veterans who demanded that their pensions be increased. And Robert Mugabe agreed to this and it hadn't been included in the budget. He basically signed it off. And so if you've got a non-costed item that's suddenly set against the budget, that'll tip the national finances into, into the red area. And Robert Mugabe decided that Zimbabwe would intervene in the Second Congo War, which at its height was costing over 30 million a day. I think that the overall expenditure of the Zimbabwean military in Congo was a billion dollars. Now, individual members of the, the military elite did very well out of that for in terms of timber contracts, in terms of mining contracts, in terms of, of other, should we say, use of their position to benefit from looting Democratic Republic of Congo's natural resources. But it certainly didn't accrue to the Zimbabwean exchequer. So you add all that together and you've got land hunger. And then you can understand why, under pressure from an indigenous political opposition in terms of the rise of movement of democratic change, and when Mugabe's government came up with a new constitution, which was rejected at a referendum, which came as a very nasty shock, that Robert Mugabe decided to ride the tiger of land reform and the farm invasions. So do you see that this is multi-dimensions to the crisis? And only if because he was under multiple pressures. And the MDC, even though it was a fusion of 
civil society organisations, church opposition, trade union organisation. It was a genuine upsurge of national opposition to ZANU-PF's governance and Robert Mugabe's leadership. But combine that with the sporadic farm invasions, which then were encouraged by Robert Mugabe. The Zimbabwean government had a coordinated plan for accelerated land reform. But Robert Mugabe decided to go not for reformation, but for revolution. And that's what tipped Zimbabwe into crisis. I see. So he bit off more than he could chew. He tried to take on too much and it ends up well, being his undoing. Oh, I don't think he did because he, success- no? he successfully rode the tiger of land hunger. And so you've got 3,000 white-owned farms. There was still an extraordinary asymmetry in land ownership. And the land hunger, which are building up with the accelerating Zimbabwean population, which had only very limited access to land, that was confined to the marginal areas of lower rainfall, limited or no irrigation, in other words, unfertile land in a more inhospitable climate. And you can see why that these vast, and they were vast landholdings, because the Zimbabwean commercial agricultural sector was a considerable contributor to the state exchequer. And once you, you have the accelerated land reforms, that goes into freefall. I can give you some statistics. No, please do. But am I wrong in thinking that these seizures that he put in place, are they not blamed for destroying Zimbabwe's economy? No, that, I think that's a misrepresentation. And that, that there's an increasing body of literature that said, that, OK, that yes, it was a revolution and it was seizure, But this was Robert Mugabe identifying a societal ill and a state had a prescription for the answer. And so it was a fusion of, if you like, the political constituency of the povo and the state had the answer. And thereby you create this Afro-radicalism led by Robert Mugabe. Wow. So take us through to Mugabe's demise, the end of his time in power. We're talking about November. 2017, when he is forced to resign. What is it that ultimately triggers this? What is it that is the final push that ousts him after these 37 years at the top? I think that, okay, the coup of November 1917, which Zimbabwe media was not allowed to call it a coup, but I feel that, quite frankly, if you've got somebody in a military uniform appearing on Zimbabwean broadcasting, having bundled the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation off air and announcing that (laughs) that this was Operation Restore Legacy was stepping in to correct errors which had crept into the politics of it all, that you what if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck and it's got feathers like a duck, it is a duck, so it's a coup. Anyway, but the point is Robert Mugabe had successfully weathered, okay, the economic meltdown of his country in the early 2000s. He had successfully weathered the challenge to his political leadership in the 2008 election campaign, where he had gone through yet another government of national unity, but through guile and manipulation of the system, had managed to outwit Morgan Sangurai, the MDC prime minister in the government of national unity by 2013. By 2017, the issue of the, uh, the succession was increasingly 
a fraught one because there had been rival factions, potential leaders, challenges to his leadership, which had welled up regularly since the 2000s at least, and of course not just MDC. But by the summer of 2017, it had become particularly fraught between the Generation 40, which were the younger element of ZANU-PF, and who had their cheerleader of Robert Mugabe's wife, Grace Mugabe, the incredibly rapacious and politically ambitious, much younger wife, who certainly aspired to be vice president and possibly kingmaker, indeed president. Not sure about that. Anyway, and the rivalry with first Joyce Majuru, Solomon Majuru's wife, who was a long-standing cabinet minister and vice president who was ousted. And then Emerson Manangagwa, who was one of the stalwarts of the liberation movement who had been with Robert Mugabe. He'd been imprisoned at the same time as Robert Mugabe. He'd been with him in Mozambique, 75 to 79. He'd been a cabinet minister from 1980 in various guises and various portfolios. And he was the head of Team Lacoste. And it was Generation 40 battling it out with Team Lacoste and the feeling among the military, the leadership, that Grace Majuru wanted to step into the vice presidential role and, as I say, had pretensions for the presidency. And it was when they tried to take down Emerson Manangagwa, he was sacked. That's when Team Lacoste and the army hierarchy decided to act. But it was the culmination, in other words, of the failure is succession planning. But by this point, Robert Mugabe was in his 90s. He was regularly falling asleep in, in official functions. He wasn't going to live forever. That was although he did at one point promise that he would rule until kingdom come, kingdom came. But it was the army stepping in because of the political infighting. And when they stepped in, then it seemed to be the moment for a potential popular revolution. And there was a mass demonstration, a million people, they think, came out in the streets of Harare and Bulawayo on the Saturday after the coup. But then the great danger, was this going to be a Gaddafi moment? Were those the, the euphoric crowd going to march on Blue Roof, which was the presidential palace in the leafy suburb of Borodale? And in other words, was Robert Mugabe, did, it risk, did everything risk suddenly going wrong? Because the idea was that... Robert Mugabe should step down, he should rest, that there should be a, a decorous changing of the guard and that he should be able to spend his time and live out his days in peace in Zimbabwe. They certainly didn't want him to be hauled out of a culvert and lynched by a mob. That was when things were very fraught indeed. But Robert Mugabe, when he gave his resignation speech on television, and I remember watching it and, and I had just laughed afterwards because it was it looked as if it was political theatre. You had the army high command. You had his Roman Catholic priest and confessor sitting next to him as if he was going to deliver the last rites on Robert Mugabe's long political career. And Robert Mugabe basically said there have been errors and I recognise them, but this was constitutional very important, it was constitutional, that he accepted this and he would take this into consideration. In other words, he didn't resign. There was nearly a national heart attack at that particular point. And so he'd lost support of the war veterans who thought we're going to step in and sack G40 from all of the positions of power within ZANU-PF councils and make sure uh, Grace Mugabe was kicked out as well. Then they decided we're going to start impeaching Robert Mugabe and so once that's when MDC thought, now we can jump in here because they're going to need our support in Parliament. 
And we could say, we want security sector reform. We want free and fair elections. And so that's when they thought, we can't have this going on any longer. It's got to stop. Robert Mugabe wanted to take it to the Congress in the December. He would resign, complete alkylation, but they didn't trust him. They thought he'll wriggle out of it again. So they had to step in, initiate impeachment proceedings, and his resignation letter was read out in the conference centre where Parliament had moved, because there weren't enough seats, in the parliamentary chamber. And as I say, Harari went nuts. It was a 24-hour party. And Manangagwa, who had fled because he knew his life was in danger when he was deposed, or rather he was sacked for, as vice president, he'd gone to Mozambique, he'd gone to South Africa, they got the sign off from the Chinese that they wouldn't intervene. By declaring it not a coup, it was constitutional, that meant that SADC and that's the Southern African Development Community and the African Union didn't have to step in and institute sanctions, because it was iffy about whether it was a coup, in which case they would have had to have done. And so Robert Mugabe's final rule came to, I would say, an ignominious and rapid conclusion. Not in the style that he intended to go, shall we say. Wow. Thank you so much for taking us through this history of Robert Mugabe. His end is almost as complex as the rule that he had in the life that he led. But to some, he is still quite clearly an evil dictator, whereas to others, he is a revolutionary hero. And you have helped explain so clearly why he has this contested legacy. But for those of us who want to hear more, who want to learn more, where can we read more of your work? Where can we buy your book? You can buy my book online. It's Robert Mugabe. I wrote this with Martin Plout, who's a leading South African British journalist, and it was published in 2018 by Ohio University Press. It's small but perfectly formed, and um, you can certainly read all about it. Sue, thank you so much. I highly recommend the book. You can buy it anywhere that they sell good books, and you can click on the link in our show notes. Sue, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And as a reminder to our Warfare listeners, you can subscribe to get early access one day early to our podcast, and you can get ad-free access to our podcast. Just head to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. You can click the link in the show notes and make sure you use the code WARFARE to get your first three months at 50% off. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.